So um, the uh, oh, Croatia have scored. It's two one. <laughs> it's two one. It's two one, and they're right towards the end of extra time. So England don't stand all that much of a chance to. No, I think that's probably it. Do we uh, have any have any follow up? Not much. We were talking a little bit about shop layouts last time, and how in Sweden. It's not just IKEA, but most shops are laid out in that very linear way. And uh, one of our listeners got in touch with me and pointed out that Flying Tiger is exactly the same, which is a Danish shop that, you know, I've only been to in Japan. But that's also that same sort of linear route. And that's a much smaller shop, but you're still following this guided route. So maybe it is a Scandinavian thing. Danny, I'm I'm a f- I'm uh, afraid to say that I've never heard of Flying Tiger. What what is Flying Tiger? Flying Tiger's a shop uh, selling sort of I don't even really know how to describe it. Kind of kitschy knickknacks for your house, or not just for your house, I suppose. It's I'll show you that. I'm surprised you've never been there. It's like massively popular in Japan. Mm. There was one in Kobe. Don't know if there was one in Osaka. Right, maybe I, maybe I've been there. I just don't know the. I didn't know the name of it. Maybe it's. Uh, is it one of those kind of funny, quirky Japanese gag stores, which is basically packed to the brim with weird gag products? I wouldn't say gag. No. Okay. Um, it's not like. I mean, I'm not sure exactly. You talk about like Village Vanguard or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Mm, I don't know. Similar-ish set of sort of random things i suppose but a little bit different a mm. little bit little bit i don't know more stylish than village vanguard maybe right i've sent you a link but i don't know how enlightening it'll be okay maybe i'll check it out later uh, anyway there's another there's another scandinavian shop which is in a very directed layout mm. okay so um i have uh interesting topic to discuss tonight Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. that is uh firstly um as a prelude to this i uh uh, managed to find blade runner 2049 at the local library so i rented it oh Oh. (laughs) and uh, brought it home and i watched it last night properly with decent sound and everything yeah so right here on my um my uh studio system so of course uh, the the best sound in the neighborhood oh very nice what a Danny, what a what a great movie! I mean, we won't talk too much about it because we've talked about it uh, before, right? And we don't want to s- slot in spoilers right at the start of the show. <laughs> no, no. Um, but what a what a great movie! I would definitely. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to call it that. I would say that Blade Runner 2049 definitely qualifies uh, in that league of of classic, excellent science fiction sequels, mm. along with like Aliens and Empire Strikes Back and. You know, uh, Starship Troopers Two. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> the the classic Starship Troopers Two that we all. Are. That's right. I was with you until that point. Yeah, no, actually, I've never I haven't seen Starship <laughs> Troopers Two, so that was a joke. But anyway, <laughs> definitely qualifies in in that league of. Uh, it's just what a consummate movie on so many levels. You know the. So I had, as I'd mentioned previously when we discussed it, uh, I'd seen it on an aeroplane and I was extremely impressive on an aeroplane. So you know that mm. on an aeroplane because you're not getting the best sound and you're watching on a tiny little screen mm-hmm. and obviously they're usually edited heavily for the for the, the aeroplane version. Right. So I knew that it was going to be much better, but I didn't expect it to be this much better. Have, now properly being able to hear it mm. and being able to understand everything and being able to see everything properly. 
I mean, just it, it's almost flawless, really. I mean, the, the acting is brilliant. The, uh, the storyline is thought-provoking, and it's, uh, it's an excellent extension of the uh, storyline from the original Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the graphics are seamless in that you don't really sort of pick up when you're looking at graphics, which is great. The um, the dialogue is excellent, you know. The uh, the music and the sound effects, of course, are uh, you know really really uh, extraordinarily good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just uh, all around, I, I just you know one of those movies that when it finishes, you just sort of want it to go on and on and on. You don't really want it to stop. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, really? Because one of the complaints was that it was a bit long. Actually, no. that was because it, it is quite a long movie. Science fiction movies can never be long enough when they're good. Because <laughs> I think the original, I mean, even the original Aliens. The director's cut of Aliens is like something like three hours long, isn't it? Is it that long? I don't remember. Yeah. yeah. I did have it on DVD, but I don't remember. Yeah. Anyway, um, highly, highly recommended any, to anybody who uh, hasn't seen it yet and is a fan of the original. And even if you're not a fan of the original, definitely watch the original and then watch this. And I don't know if you've seen, but the three promotional short videos that came along with Blade Runner 2049. Oh, I haven't seen those, no. I wasn't aware of them. Yeah, so actually on the DVD, there is a a bonus feature of three shorts that were basically made by request of the director Mm. uh, to basically his best director buddies. Mm -hmm. And uh, he basically gave them three of the sort of events and things that you you hear about in the storyline in the in the actual movie right and said here's 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 a story premise here's some dialogue could you just make me a quick you know short promotional video about this oh wow and yeah the those three shorts are actually freely viewable on youtube oh i'll definitely have to take a look at them yeah reminds me a little bit of uh did you see the animatrix when that came out no i didn't you didn't see those those were great they came out i think between the matrix and the second one right reloaded yeah I, whatever the second I, one was, was called. i was never really a, a huge matrix fan like I, mm. I, I watched the the first one, and it was a very, very impressive movie on on again on many, many levels. Mm-hmm. But it it didn't sort of really grab me uh, so much that I'd oh, I want to I want to see more and more and more of this. Mm. Well, yeah, at the end of the first movie, I really felt like oh, this is this is definitely where it should end. Mm. They shouldn't make another movie. So when I heard they were going to, I was I was quite disappointed. But between that movie and the second movie coming out, they released, I don't know if it even went to cinema, if it was straight to DVD, but they, they released a series of, I think it was about six anime shorts. Mm. Not really shorts. I mean, I think they were about, I think they might even have been half an hour each or something. They were like episodes. Right. And that was called The Animatrix. Okay. And those were really good. Mm. Those were all really good. One of them was by the guy who does Cowboy Bebop. Oh, yeah. Did Cowboy Bebop. Right. They they were all by famous directors. One of them was by the Ghost in the Shell guy, I think. Mm. And, you know, exactly the sorts of people you would think of. And they were really good. Mm. So they were sort of, they got me excited about The Matrix again. Right. And then the second movie came out and yeah. I was sad. I think for me, I, I've never really found the whole premise of the, the sort of superhero model of of movie where you know you are the chosen one and you know uh-huh. with with great power comes great responsibility and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've never really really found that very interesting to be honest. Yeah, just personally. yeah, yeah. We had a whole episode about yeah. that, um, and so therefore the uh, the Matrix, which is um, you know kind kind of centered around that to a certain degree, 
never really sort of gripped me. The, the premise of it. I think you would enjoy the Animatrix. Okay. Because those are, none of them, as far as I remember, none of them feature the main characters from the Matrix. Okay. They don't feature Neo or Morpheus or, or any of that crowd. Right. They are all taking some of the ideas from the universe of, of the Matrix mm. and exploring those ideas a little bit more deeply. Right. So that's, um, these Blade Runner shorts are similar, maybe slightly different direction in that there are some events that happen in, in the history mm-hmm. in between the original movie and Blade Runner 2049. Right. For example, one of those is the blackout. And um, these shorts basically cover small events that you hear about in the 2049 movie but aren't really elaborated that much. And so, you know, you know what it is from the dialogue in the movie. Right. You know, they talk about the blackout and it's explained to you what the blackout was. Mm. And so, you know, you're watching it thinking, oh, that's that's interesting. You know, I wonder what that was about. And then, you know, there you go. There's a freely viewable short video that actually shows you what actually happened mm. for that specific event. And so that's one of them is a, an animated movie by a a uh, Japanese director, and the other two are live action by uh, other directors. And the other, the, the live action ones do feature actors from uh, 2049. So, oh, I see. yeah, but okay. it's a really neat sort of um, promotional tool, really, because, you know, when you finish watching the movie, especially one that's this good, you just kind of want more of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, being able to go and see these sort of uh, short movies that have been made by other people from different perspectives but based on events that you hear about in the main movie itself mm. it's a really sort of neat way to you know gr- grab the viewer and really hold on to them tight yeah yeah it definitely sounds sounds like something i'd want to watch i didn't even realize they'd come out with them anyway so the um topic that i've brought along for uh, today's discussion is actually uh, related to science fiction i am and um I have uh, stumbled across a uh, YouTube channel, mm-hmm. which I highly recommend our listeners who are interested in science fiction uh, to go and subscribe to because it's excellent. It's called Dust. Dust. Just Dust at the end. Yep. D-U-S-T. Dust. Oh, wow. Okay. And Dust is basically a YouTube channel that puts out weekly or bi-weekly short science fiction movies. Hmm. Fantastic. <laughs> are they all by the same people or do they sort of get various people to direct various things or? exactly so uh the latter so basically dust okay. appears to be kind of like a distribution promotional platform for independent directors and small uh you know small project groups who make science fiction movies so mm. every video is basically by a completely different group of people right and most of them are live action mm-hmm. and they're all about 10 to 15 minutes long. Mm. And I've watched maybe five or six of them and uh, all of them so far have been just really, really excellent. And they really capture the um, the exciting potential that short, short stories uh, have to kind of really, really set your imagination off to fill in all of these gaps that you miss out on because the time is so short. Mm. Yeah. Oh, uh, that, yeah. That sounds good. I'll, I'll definitely have to give it a go. Yeah. I, I quite like short stories as a medium. I'm actually subscribed to a couple of fantasy and science fiction short story magazines, mm. which are much more, you know, they are the written word. Uh, and one of them has a podcast as well. So, right. But neither of them is, is visual. Right. But yeah, short stories are, are a great medium for sort of getting getting to the point quickly. Exactly. Yeah. 
and exploring an interesting idea. So every one of these videos, uh, every one of the dust move, well, not everyone, well, every one that I've watched has been sort of a really good example of specifically that, mm -hmm. that you don't get much information about what's happening before and you don't get any information about what's happening afterwards and you're basically sort of following a, a very tight linear line through a set of events and stuff and you sort of, your mind is really overactively kind of trying to fill in the pieces of what's going on here mm. in many of the cases. And, uh, uh, yeah, just really, really excellent. So they've – I don't know how I how I have not discovered it up till now because <laughs> they've been doing this for, I think, about two or three years. It looks like the channel's been going for. Two or three years. And how often did you say they released? Originally it was twice a week. Now it's sort of once mm -hmm. a week to once every one and a half or two weeks. That's a lot. I'm impressed that they can sustain that sort of – what are the production values like? Yeah, so that's that's why – I was also surprised about that too because so far the, all the, the uh, movies that I've seen on there – have been excellent. I mean, they they are small short story movies produced by small teams. Mm. So obviously, you know, the, the, what they can do as far as capabilities go, as far as like special effects and uh, things like that, is is much is very very limited. However, as far as sort of quality of cinema goes, they're they're all excellent. As a nice example, the last one that I watched, mm. which was called Mist Drop, I believe, basically. The whole movie, being a 10, somewhere like 10, 15 minute movie, was basically a very tightly cropped front view of a soldier's helmet. Mm. So all you're, all you're seeing is the soldier's face and uh, he has like a heads up display on the inside of his helmet's glass. Oh, so it's not looking out. No, it's looking, it's looking in. in. So all you're seeing is his face and you're seeing reflections of the graphics that are coming up on his heads up display mm. on, the, on the sort of reversed on the, on the screen of his, uh, of his, of his visor. Mm. And um, that's it. And, <laughs> and the rest of the movie is excellent dialogue, fantastic sound and obviously uh, extraordinarily good acting. From the one actor, mm, from the yeah, yeah. so yeah, it, think, things wow. like that. You know, when you think about that's that's a, a great example of how to make the most out of a tight budget and you know a very mm. short short amount of time because obviously you can't stretch something like that out for too long before it becomes a bit uh, frustrating. <laughs> mm, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's just one example of uh, short form story writing when it's converted into a, a visual cinema format. So. Mm. Um, yes. So anyway, before I get onto the discussion topic, uh, those out there who are interested in science fiction, definitely go subscribe to Dust and check out a few of the videos that come up there because they're yeah. it's very very good. Sounds great. Are they are they all about the same length or are they vary? Uh, it varies, and you'll get some trailers on there as well, um, sort of one mm -hmm. to two minute trailers or sort of preview films for things that are coming. Mm -hmm. But the longer ones, uh, the, the longest that I could find there is about fifteen minutes long. Right. So there are two themes that come up in a lot of the, the videos that I've scanned through, the ones that I've watched specifically as well. And these are themes that are very common in science fiction writing. Mm -hmm. And I thought it might be interesting if we sort of um, discuss a bit about, you know, why, why it is that we find that people tend to find these themes interesting and uh, um, maybe what's brought them on and I guess the 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 potential for these themes to actually become reality. So mm. those two themes uh, are kind of a bit cliched now, but the first one is artificial intel intelligence gets out of control and humans get, all get killed. Yeah. 
So that's a, a fairly common... Terminator 2. That's another bloody sequel that is amazing. Yeah. How, how did you come up with uh, Starship, Troopers, Starship 2. Troopers 2 before you thought of Terminator 2? I was being, I was being facetious. <laughs> I was being facetious. Anyway, yeah, so that's uh, Terminator 2 is obviously a great example, a very, very, very successful, very uh, highly visible example of, of that genre. Mm. And uh, the second one is humans have ruined the planet Earth and now we need to leave. Right. Yeah. Which is another very uh, common um, trope, I guess might be the word. Yeah. That you find increasingly fictional. Yes. So, first one. Let's talk a little bit about artificial intelligence because this is something that we've never really talked about before. Mm. So many of these movies uh, and Blade Runner too. Mm-hmm. Blade Runner also is is heavily centered around this topic. It's it's the idea that basically humans create uh, artificial beings that are sentient, and uh, where does the what do we do about the rights of these beings? Are they life forms? Are they alive? Right. And before that as well, you know, how do you how do you prevent them being if they are technologically advanced and superior to to organic human beings, mm. how do you prevent them from, you know, running amok and basically uh uh overtaking uh humankind uh and performing some kind of massive fictional genocide on on human beings in order to you know cleanse the earth of uh, of of this blemish this is the future and all of that right or to take advantage and to to take over right the planet right? Yeah, yeah yeah so what's your feeling about artificial artificial intelligence and you know with the speed that artificial intelligence is coming along these days you know, there are always these these predictions that you read and that you see about, uh, you know, it's only this many decades before we'll have, you know, fully self-aware, sentient computer life forms. Mm. But what's your feeling about uh, the the viability of that, the feasibility of that? And I guess, you know, the 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 media likes to paint this kind of shade of, of uh, fear about that. But what's your feeling about that? Uh... I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of nonsense involved in in the talk mm. about artificial intelligence and related fields and it's it's fairly poorly understood which means that a lot of different ideas get conflated under this this big umbrella idea of of artificial intelligence, the meaning of which has changed mm. vastly over over the decades. And, you know, a lot of things that, that we used to call artificial intelligence are now being called machine learning. Mm. And, and everyone's suddenly really excited about machine learning now in a way that in the 80s, everyone was also really excited about artificial intelligence until it, you know, it seemed to be making huge strides and then people started to realize it's actually quite hard mm. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, suddenly people weren't so interested in it anymore mm. it's very difficult to define you know what what intelligence is what sentience is what feelings are and, and where to draw the line right you know because i think we we anthropomorphize things a lot mm. as humans yeah a huge amount and and we assign motivations to things that that clearly don't really 
have any. Mm. And artificial intelligence and related sort of ideas in computing are, are very prone to that. By no means the only thing. I mean, you look at the way that people talk about evolution or even biology. Mm. I was talking with someone the other day and, and he was saying, you know, think about the way that people talk about disease and your your antibodies go to attack the disease. They detect a sort of foreign presence and they, they go to attack it mm. and, and all this sort of language. And that's not really what's happening. I mean, you know, they're not getting together in the, in the war room and plotting out <laughs> like strategy. Right. You know, it's just chemical reactions. <laughs> like, right. There's no thought behind it. Right. right? And I think uh, in a similar way, the artificial intelligence has a kind of similar thing that happens. You know, a, a lot of the technology behind machine learning and, and neural networks is is just a very simple bit of mathematics being applied across quite a complicated network mm. and it's it's not even that new you know i remember writing a neural network on the first game i ever made actually mm. for straight out of university and i worked on this uh essentially a nintendogs clone <laughs> mm. <laughs> for pc Right. Called Fetch. Right. <laughs> Wonderful. For all that, like, it's quite bad. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it did crash quite a lot. And in fact, one of the reviews on Amazon is specifically about somebody whose daughter bought it for them for Father's Day. And they were going to have this nice Father's Day day together playing this simulated dog game. But it just crashed on their computer and ruined their Father's Day. So <laughs> I do feel a bit bad about that. <laughs> but... I'm actually quite proud of that game because <laughs> I was straight out of university and I was literally half the programming team and we knocked it out in a few months. So, right. you know, it had its issues, but developing on the PC is a nightmare anyway, and it used to be mm. even worse. But one of, the, one of the things is that, you know, Nintendogs had this microphone where you could talk to your dog mm. and it would sort of recognize your voice and you could teach it to do tricks and stuff like that. But on PC, especially back then, we couldn't guarantee that everyone would have a microphone on their PC. Mm. So I thought, well, what what do they have? They've got a mouse, right? Mm. And when you're training dogs, you actually do, you don't just use your voice, you make gestures. So when you're training a dog to sit, you teach it by saying sit and lifting your arm up. And the dog's, the dog's eyes will follow your hand as it goes up. Mm. And as its head is sort of going up, its ass tends to go down. <laughs> that's, that's, and that's how you teach it to sit. Oh, okay. So I, I was learning all these, this stuff about uh, training dogs. And I thought, well, what about a gesture recognition thing mm. in the game? Mm. So you would, you, know, you would draw these gestures with your mouse and the dog would perform a trick based on that. And so I was quite pleased with this. It was it was my idea. I suggested it. We put it in the game. I wrote the neural network in order to do the gesture recognition. Mm. And it was on the back of the box. So that was cool. Mm. That was my first sort of big success in, in games development. Mm. <laughs> Even if it did ruin somebody's father's day. That poor man. <laughs> so, the, you know, the technology that we were using then, all this stuff that gets sort of that everyone's very excited about now is kind of just a d development of that same idea. So it's, it's kind of, I don't know. I, 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 
I have a little bit of a reaction to people suddenly getting very excited about, you know, AI can beat humans at Go now. And we thought that was an, a thing that humans were sort of uniquely good at and would be very difficult to beat. And then all of a sudden, Google managed to create AlphaGo and, and create an AI to, to defeat humans. Hmm. And that's one thing. But then that starts up a big panic about like, well, so now we're so much closer to AI taking over the earth. Right. And I don't really think, I think those things are so far removed. Like Go is such a specific use case. Mm. And recognizing images is is also a very kind of specific thing. Right, right. And even like, you know, automated driving. Right. Right, automatic vehicles. It's still, there's no thought happening there. We are training a simple mathematical model in order to be able to recognize and react to certain stimuli. Mm. The question is, what differentiates that then from humans? Because the argument is, this is a gross oversimplification, but that our brains are essentially just a a massive, extremely complicated neural network. a more developed version of the thing that I knocked together to to do mouse gesture recognition. Right. I don't think we know that that's true, but it is a claim that is often made. The point that you made earlier on about uh, humans' tendency to anthropomorphize things, Mm. that's a really key point because even in a very simplistic sense, you know, when you see two circles with like a banana-shaped curve underneath it, you sort of immediately associate that as being a face. Right. And by the same token, you know, when you when you fast forward to current day and Boston Dynamics latest, greatest, you know, robot walking machine mm. is doing stuff like opening doors or, or, you know, climbing down cliff faces or whatever. Right. It would just, just you know, astoundingly amazing technology. But mm. that's it, – it's, it's really fascinating how quickly we place human human motives and human – uh, sort of a human framework of understanding on what we're seeing mm. when, when we mm. when we see when we see a machine that is able to walk up to a locked door, understand that it's locked, find how to turn a key or something, right. and then open it and walk through. You know, we immediately think, "Oh, now there's no stopping them." You know, <laughs> they're coming. You, you can lock your door, but they're going to find a way through. Which is a very it's a very human thing to do. If you mm. it's basically placing on the machine, a human motive, right? like this kind of human objective. And it's the same thing with seeing a face in, in an abstract set of shapes that you are placing onto this, what is essentially just a completely arbitrary set of shapes. Right. You're placing onto it this association with something that is human. Right. Yeah. In fact, there's a Twitter account devoted to this idea called Faces in Things. Yeah, that's great. Which just posts photos of, of clouds and handbags and random posts and anything that looks like it's got a face in right. it. Right, usually, usually with a really, really good caption. Right. Because, <laughs> uh, like, they take it one step further. It's not just a face, but it's actually in a, a face with expression and an emotion. Right, emotion, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they, they yeah. caption it really cleverly to uh, to actually yeah. sort of capture that uh, that emotion as well. But I think that, you know, just, just as with Boston Dynamics, amazing machines and robot technology, it, it's the same, that... that knee-jerk reaction to look for some kind of human motivation 
uh, behind something artificial that is performing an artificial act. Mm. It, it, it also extends, as you said, extends to uh, uh, sort of thought or intelligence or or you know cognitive understanding and right. things like that as well. On the other hand, in a sense, it it actually doesn't matter. I guess when we get down the sort of ethical moral side of things, maybe it'll be a different story. But in terms of worries about AI taking over the earth or, or indulging in some sort of mass genocide of humans, I'm not sure that's the sort of thing you indulge in, but (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't actually matter whether its motivations are human or not. If that's what it ends up doing. Right. Right. It's just kind of the one of the ideas that Arthur C. Clarke is exploring in in his short stories, where he he has those simple three rules. I can't remember what they were. The, the three rules of robotics. It's like I shall not harm the human. I shall not harm myself. Or so. do you remember what they no, were? I don't remember. I know that those. I remember the the three rules, but I don't remember what they were. Yeah, uh, and also in a sort of an idea that is being explored in in Ex Machina, which I'm guessing you still haven't watched. I still haven't watched it. You, you must watch it. It's, it's very pertinent to this conversation, and it's a good movie. Okay. But uh, I, I won't spoil it, but, you know, it's, it has an AI in it. And I think the way that it approaches thinking about the motivations of that AI is, is very interesting. Mm. And, the, and the relationship between the AI and the... the the human characters in the movie. So yes, definitely, definitely recommend watching it. But if we perceive the AI to be sort of making some sort of emotional decision about its place in the universe, it doesn't in a sense really matter Mm. if its decision is actually emotional or if it's just an emergent property of the model that it is running across because its action ends up being affected by that decision. Yeah, but what we are talking about here is the tendency for people to look for that in something that potentially you may not need to be worried so much about. You know, you know when right. you see Boston right. Dynamics machine opening, you know, a locked door, you immediately feel a sense that it's alive and it's coming to get me mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it knows that the door is locked and it's and it's coming through. You know, and this is the end of all humanity. Whereas uh, that tendency... Well, the AI doesn't have to be alive for that to be a threat, though, right? I mean, Yeah, but the point... That's right. If the robot is capable of doing that, that is scary because a human might control it to do that on their behalf, you know? Right, right, right. But I think the point there, though, is that the... Yeah, that sort of knee-jerk reaction to associate those kinds of human intentions with mm. something that's artificial. That's, that's the, the key point there, which is which you uh, stated right at the beginning of what you said about anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphization. Yes, that's it. I'm not... Uh, too many long words. Too many long words. Too many long words. <laughs> Interesting. So the second, the second theme is that, you know, uh, humans have ruined the planet Earth and we have to leave. Right. And it's kind of, you know, uh, our... The only way forward for humankind is to leave the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. There was a few um, short videos on uh, on Dust, which I watched, which uh, had this theme in them, and I, I couldn't st- I couldn't help but think that 
it feels almost like such an unnatural thing for a human to be in space. Mm. <laughs> I think because uh, one or two of those videos touch on the sort of the fragility of an existence in space, basically. Mm -hmm. You're, you're in, basically inside a pr some kind of pressurized vessel. Right. And you're in a vacuum where, mm. you know, if you just cannot exist outside of that vacuum unless you're Princess Leia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Spoilers. <laughs> um, but basically, outside of your, this kind of, this sort of capsule of, of existence for uh, this... For, for humankind, you know, you just cannot exist out there. Mm. And it, it sort of made me think of what a surreal thing it is for humans to be even in space. Yeah. So, therefore, the idea that our place is in the stars because we must leave the planet Earth, for me, watching a few of those movies and thinking about that sort of, it began to seem more and more surreal and almost unnatural it's like really is is that where we have to go yeah i mean it's interesting uh, at one point that was what people thought about flight as well yeah, exactly what i was just about to say is that i thought that but mm. then on deeper thought i i realized that well how natural is it for humans to be able to fly through the air or to go to the bottom of the sea in a submarine i mean in those cases right. as well it's exactly the same as being in space except you know right maybe maybe marginally less lethal <laughs> marginally mm. But um, underneath the sea, under the weight of all of that water, which you cannot survive in, you're basically inside this tiny little vessel. Right. And uh, the same with being in the sky. You know, you're flying through the sky. Mm. I mean, that's amazing when you think about it. <laughs> but also, again, in this tiny little vessel of sort of, mm. uh, of an artificial environment that is built to accommodate humans in a place where they're not supposed to be. Mm. <laughs> Or maybe maybe not supposed to be is is part of this discussion, but it, you know whether not that humans are not designed to be naturally in a vacuum or right yeah I mean I think you know you look at Elon Musk and others the certainly I think the current intent is not for us to survive in some vessel in space mm. but to to create another habitable environment presumably on mars mm. as the closest sort of candidate for that so it's that seems you know if if you could sort of terraform mars in some way to make it you know habit habitable that does not seem so unnatural mm. right that's kind of a similar idea you, you you're on some rock with some sort of atmosphere floating in space. Yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, perhaps perhaps that that's what it is. Really, I think that the you know with the, the human body is designed to function on land, <laughs> and you know we have we're bipedal. We have bodies that balance right. well under gravity. We have um, you know we have arms and legs that are highly functional and designed specifically for the, the place that we live. You know, which is land with right. gravity and air. And right. that's, I think, that's, as you said, yeah, that's, that's primarily the reason why the idea of humans being in space, if you think about that as simply a stepping stone toward another place right. where humans uh, c can comfortably function, then that makes it less right. surreal, I suppose. But then what is land? Who's to say that, you know, a very large spaceship that we have made is any less valid 
a form of of land to live on than this rock or that rock over mm, there. True. Like the fact that it's man-made, you know, if it's if it's large enough and has an atmosphere and has gravity, mm. what's the difference? Yeah, that's true. Uh, no vitamin D. <laughs> well, it depends how far you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think? Because that's the other thing. Like, there's there's extraterrestrial existence, uh, extraterrestrial life for humankind within this solar system mm. is one thing. And then there's traveling the galaxy or traveling the universe. Right. Uh, and I think the latter is is so much more of a kind of leap that you have to take. Mm. I think, you know, you think of like being in space as the the next frontier that is the big step from where we are. But there is a, a huge difference between hopping over to Mars, our nearest neighbour, mm. or existing, living in a ship in orbit around Earth, Mars, or the mm. Sun, right? As compared with leaving our solar system entirely. I think there's a, there's a huge difference in the feasibility of those two ideas mm. and the likelihood they are to happen and the timescale in which they will happen. Mm. I don't think we'll be leaving our solar system anytime soon. No, there's a, a little thing called uh, gravity and uh, and uh, astronomical distance that we have to kind of figure out yeah, first. Yeah, space is really big, really very big. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where the closest solar system is. Um, is it, isn't it Alpha but, Centauri? No. Yeah, you are right. Alpha Centauri is the star system closest to the solar system, mm. which is ours being 4.37 light years from the sun. Right. So so at light speed, which we can't go at, right. it would take 4.37 years right. to get How there. long does it take to get to Mars at current... Uh, like if we wanted to send a person to Mars, like how long would that take? Well... This is what the internet is for. This is what the internet is for. We have sent things to Mars. Mm. So... That should be an answerable question. It obviously depends on when you sit. Like they, they always try and send it when the planets are aligned nicely, so that you know the journey can be quite short. Because mm. you have to take advantage of the orbits and and in the time you take to get there, obviously Mars moves. Mm. So you're you're shooting for where it's going to be. Right, right. The site I'm looking at is long. And all written in Italic Comic Sans, <laughs> finding it very difficult to skim to find the answer to the question. Poor old Comic Sans. <laughs> Most misunderstood font ever. Misunderstood? Misunderstood. How is it misunderstood? Oh, just that people misunderstand what the actual intention of Comic Sans actually is. It's, it's for comic books. <laughs> it's not for it's not for doing the, f- <laughs> the clue is in the that's title. right it's it's not for doing the uh, doing your your shop sign or doing your uh, astronomical website in yes well 228 days is how long mariner 4 took mm, to get there okay so that's that's one answer right <laughs> that'll have to do right so you know half a year or something maybe mm. i don't know i mean the earth has been around for a long time. I know we're doing our damnedest, but I suspect that the Earth will outlive us. Mm. In some form or other. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess the idea is that we're not destroying the Earth to the extent that it is unlivable for anything. Right. It's only that it's it, that we can't live in it. Right. That's right. that's the, that's the <laughs> point. Yeah. That's the thing we're concerned about. Right. right. Yeah. Before we leave the topic of science fiction, I thought I'd just mention to you that uh, several weeks ago, I decided to show my eight-year-old son. Star Wars for the first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How did that go? Well, did he enjoy it? Naturally. The first, the episode four. No, I've, I, th- I thought I'd start him in chronological order. Uh, no, I wouldn't do that to my son. <laughs> of course, uh, of course uh, starting with episode four. Mm-hmm. So I was a little bit nervous about doing this because, firstly, I can't remember how old I was when I first saw Star Wars. Mm. And my son is eight. Mm. He's very intelligent, mm-hmm. but he's also very sensitive. Mm-hmm. And he generally doesn't like movies. Oh, right. Because he's very sensitive, so he tends to think about them a lot, which means that uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes, even some children's movies, sometimes it can be like dark moments and moments of sadness are particularly difficult for him in movies. Mm. I think, uh, you know, and no amount of telling him that, um, you know, we try to talk a lot about movies that, uh, you know, we talk about the fact that these are not, it's not real, obviously. These are actors and they're, you know, professionals who are basically reading lines that are written by a story writer and there is a set and there's a director that's helping people mm. bring it together and that there's computer graphics and, that, you know, that there's... Um, being that uh, my work is in games, um, it helps him to sort mm-hmm. of understand that, you know, what you're looking at is not real. It's basically people whose jobs it is is to create this immersive fantasy Mm. story that you're watching Mm -hmm. so i was very nervous about showing him star wars but he actually asked to see it and obviously oh really yeah so obviously um when you're eight and now that he is uh perfectly fluent in swedish (laughs) you know with uh i think this was around the time that the um a lot of the promotional stuff for the solo movie was ramping up Mm -hmm. and so i think a lot of his friends were probably talking about star wars this and star wars that so Mm. that's why he he knew that i had the dvd Mm -hmm. discs and so he uh, asked to see it so to cut to the end of the story he didn't go too well (laughs) oh really (laughs) yeah we we didn't get too far through it all right but the the point at which he said i i want to stop this is too much Mm -hmm. is is kind of interesting so (laughs) you would think that if you've got a young sensitive eight-year-old who's not mm-hmm. very desensitized when it comes to fictional violence or uh, fictional sadness or mm-hmm. fictional darkness, mm. you would think that it would be something to do with Darth Vader, right? Perhaps, yes. You know, I mean, most young children who will recount their first experience of Star Wars will remember that opening scene where Darth Vader strides through the airlock and uh, looking for Princess Leia on the on the uh, right. freighter vessel, I think it was a freighter. I don't remember. Anyway. Whatever it is. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Although, you know, all you just said about he tends to think deeply about something and, you know, tends to get very sort of invested in what the character's thinking and all of that leads me to think that, you know, it's not just the sheer horror thing of Darth Vader. So my many... I I would not put my money on Darth Vader. Mm. My money would be on before you you reveal the point at which you stop watching. I might as well put my cards on the table. I'm going to say when Luke goes home and and his home's been destroyed and his uncle is gone and all that. 
Mm. That is my guess for, for the thing that would be upsetting. Interesting. Yes. No, it was not that point. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, let's go then. Let's so continue. All of these things were quite shocking, shocking for me because up to the point where he couldn't watch, mm-hmm. up to that point we'd seen Vader strangle somebody. Mm-hmm. We've seen the kind of charred carcasses of of aunt and uncle. Uh, I can't recall their names right now. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Uncle Owen and Aunt Rue. That's okay. it. Uh, we've seen their charred bodies on the ground. Mm-hmm. We've seen Vader try to choke somebody at at the uh, the um, conference table in the Death Star. Mm-hmm. But no, actually, the moment was not at all to do with. Um, uh, Darth Vader mm-hmm. wasn't it all to do with violence. Mm. So the actual moment was, and I am I'm looking at the Star Wars: A New Hope script right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read up to the point where he said, "Daddy, I want to stop now." Okay, okay you ready? Yeah. So I'm going to read the script here. This is the, the New Hope script. Mm. The computer monitor flashes readouts. 3PO, the tractor beam is coupled to the main reactor in seven locations. A power loss at one of the terminals will allow the ship to leave. Mm. Ben studies the data on the monitor readout. I don't think you boys can help. I must go alone. Mm. Whatever you say, I've done more than I bargained for on this trip already. Luke says, I want to go with you. Ben says, be patient, Luke. Stay and watch over the droids. Mm. Ben continues... They must be delivered safely or other star star systems will suffer the same fate as Alderaan. Your destiny lies along a different path than mine. The Force will be with you always. Mm. That point, he said, Daddy, I want to stop. (laughs) (laughs) So actually, actually, so this is basically the point where Luke's mentor, kind of like his father figure, parts with Luke. Right. And it's really, really... Like when he said that he wanted to stop at that point, and I could see that he was a little mm-hmm. bit disturbed by Ben having to leave. Mm-hmm. You can see what's coming next, right? He knew that Ben was not coming back, right? But right. how he knew it was mm-hmm. uh, not because he sort of, in, you know, in his mind he's kind of extrapolating the storyline, or he thinks, oh, you know, because when you think about it, if you're expecting something like that, that's probably because you have seen many movies where something similar like that will happen. Right. Or read many stories. Right. Where, you know, it's like this is this is a point of departure here and he's not ever going to see him again. Mm. It wasn't that. He told me later it was simply the look on uh, Alec Guinness's face mm. when he looks directly into Luke's eyes and says the Force will be with you always mm. and then runs down the hallway. Mm. Like the... the when, I, when he said that and I thought about that scene and, and mm-hmm. uh, Guinness's expression and that's mm. intensely powerful acting. Yes. And, and he's, he's quite right. Without actually knowing anything about the story or without even a sort of a, a framework of experience with other stories to go off, mm. you can definitely sense that Obi-Wan Kenobi knows that he's not coming back at that point. Mm. Which is the, obviously the reason why he offers, uh, you know, such a, a significant parting words with uh, with Luke. Yes, but yeah, yeah. yeah I, the he said that he he didn't like the idea that Ben was leaving Luke forever, mm. and that uh, uh, even though he knew that it wasn't his father, and he knew that he was just a quote strange old hermit, um, <laughs> <laughs> even though he knew that 
he could sense immediately that he was leaving, but this connection between Luke and Obi-Wan mm. was so fatherly that it was just very disturbing for him to see that. So he said he wanted to stop. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. you know, if he... If he, if he, if he stuck through right, it. Right, <laughs> you would realise that if you're a Jedi, you never really leave. <laughs> you, right. you just become blue. <laughs> I mean, he'd have to stick through a couple more movies to see blue Obi-Wan, right? <laughs> Right. But yes, anyway, next time that you watch A New Hope, pay special attention to that scene because um, Guinness's acting is, is, you know, obviously, I mean, he's a a legendary actor, but that's one of those specific moments when you realize the power of excellent acting that you can Mm. make uh, an innocent eight-year-old who has no experience with or very, very little experience with cliched story Mm. understand that these are parting words and are not coming back. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder now, circling back to the more recent movies, obviously we've gone on record as having very much enjoyed these these new Star Wars movies that have been coming out. Yes. Do you think, though, that they feature anything like that? Like an Alec Guinness sort of level of, of powerful acting that you can... You can feel emotionally what's what's coming up no like they're fun they're fun adventures and they're definitely enjoyable movies to watch yeah but i'm not sure i'm trying to think whether there are any moments like that Mm. and i can't think of any no i can't either no i would say no uh i mean obviously alec guinness is of the old guard you know difficult to replace you know uh, he he is a legend (laughs) for a very 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 good reason and comes from an era of uh stage play and screen craft yeah uh which uh was a different era where there is no reliance on anything really and it's all you and your dialogue Mm. and your expression and Mm. your body language Mm. so unfortunately no i think that the last well, I, I mean, I can say I said it before when we talked about Blade Runner twenty four forty nine, and I can say it again mm. now, having watched it again last night properly, that um, mm. Ryan Gosling's performance is exceptionally good, and he has a a, a weirdly calm, subtle intensity mm. about the way that he performs the role of K in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Mm. It's it's it's. I think we I, I talked about it uh, before as well that it's like a. You know, I, I originally thought that the casting of him in that role, because he, he's, he's mm-hmm. looks, he looks so soft and you, mm. you would naturally associate bl- the Blade Runner with somebody who's kind of gritty and tough like Harrison Ford. Mm. And um, Ryan Gosling has this, this very sort of soft, mild look about him. But mm. the kind of subtle intensity about his acting in, uh, in um, Blade Runner 2049 was was so good yeah i remember you mentioned that i don't think i noticed it to the same extent as you Mm. but yeah i mean i thought it was pretty good but i wasn't i don't think i was blown away by it to the extent that you were but he's still no alec guinness no no (laughs) (laughs) he's not um so yeah sadly i think that uh that that degree of uh sort of what is it about his expression? You know, what is it about the way that he delivers the words? Mm. You know, what is it about his body language, which which undeniably informs even an eight-year-old who hasn't watched many movies or read that many stories, mm. you know, of the intention of this character with unrelated words? Mm. You know, uh, it that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that really is acting on a different level. Yeah. 
Have you seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the the BBC dramatization that they they did of that book? Of which book? Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, no, by John Le Carre. No, I haven't. They did. There was a movie recently, well, recently like five years ago or something, with Gary Oldman and and Benedict Cumberbatch mm. and a few other people. But the in in the BBC series, I think it was a TV adaptation, Alec Guinness plays the main character, mm. George Smiley. Right. And and he's superb in that as well, of course. Mm. So that's that's also well worth mm. a watch. Yeah. So uh there you have it. I'm um I have on order at the uh the local library uh Rogue One, which I have not seen yet. Mm. So I'm um, hopefully going to be able to watch that over the... I think it's it's coming into the library uh, tomorrow, so I think I can go pick it up mm. and maybe watch it tomorrow night. So uh, I shall I shall report. That'll be good. Yeah, I enjoyed Rogue I think One. most people enjoyed Rogue One. I don't know of many people who didn't enjoy it. Really? I I seem to remember at the time it was... There were a few, I thought it was about 50-50. But oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, unlike uh, Last Jedi, which I think is... Uh, Have you seen those people uh, trying to... I think they're calling it Save Star Wars or something. <laughs> they've, <laughs> they've got like a Twitter campaign right. to do some sort of crowdfunding to make a new Star Wars movie that is, you know, is the Star Wars for Star Wars fans that hate the actual Star Wars movies that are being made. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's gonna I, I, I wish that I, I would love to see that like i think uh even though as you said we've we have gone on record as being uh approving of movies such as the last jedi i um uh-huh. i still would love to see what hardcore star wars fans think is a proper star wars movie right i would i just obviously it'll never happen mm. because <laughs> The numbers that they claim that they've raised are just made up numbers from like millions of people going, oh yeah, I'll chip in 30 bucks who never will, right? (laughs) (laughs) And they don't have the rights. So even if they could raise the money, like they can't make the movie without being sued. (laughs) They're never going to get any sort of interesting director or known actors to sort of join in their ridiculous little shroud. Right. So like, the whole thing is ridiculous. But I almost wish that Disney would hold back from suing them. Right. So that we can see yeah. the terrible movie that they make. Right. <laughs> I, I wonder how terrible it would be. I think if they... I think it's it's interesting, though, to entertain the idea that, like, I, I agree that it's it's highly infeasible, <laughs> uh, but I think it's it's interesting to entertain the idea that Disney and all of the, the corporate business team and the story team and the creative team mm. behind all of the Star Wars movies mm. have lost the plot and fans of the movie who grew up with the originals and love the originals... Mm-hmm are the kind of sacred keepers of the actual plot. <laughs> you know, and it's, in, it's interesting <laughs> to kind of um, entertain that idea that, uh, you know, they're doing it the wrong way and we know how to do it the right way. Because I would love to know, not that I dispute what they're saying is, you know, could make for an extremely excellent Star Wars movie. I'm sure it actually would be, you know, if they did have... 
if Disney suddenly said, oh, okay, guys, you're right. We have lost the plot. You guys clearly have the plot. So we'll make, <laughs> we'll make your movie. I'm, I'm, sure, uh, I'm sure it would be a really, really, really excellent movie. I'm, I'm pretty sure it would. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'd, I'd love like, to see it. But you, ha- you haven't seen, I, I'm guessing you haven't seen any of their sort of marketing material or their Twitter. No, no, I have the things they've been no. putting out. They are, I mean, they've got all these sort of like statements of intent. And part of it, for example, is that everything would be, would be, I think it's like voted on, would be like decided by the group, oh. by the, by all the fans. <laughs> That's going to work out well. Like, so it's not like a director's vision. Right. It's like this, <laughs> this awful sort of designed by committee or the committee of nerds who have, have got to stick up their ass about the, uh, the current. Crop of Star Wars movies. I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really take them that seriously. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wish them all the best of luck. I think. Uh, I, I think it's. You have to laugh, really, at the end of the day. Yes. Anyway, we should uh, we should stop there before we get too much hate. It's official, by the way. England lost. Okay. Just now. Just now. The game ended. Croatia two one. Very sad. At least I'll be able to concentrate on the conversation now. <laughs>